0: Podcastle, episode 219, for July 31st, 2012. The Circle Harp, by Donna Glee Williams. Rated PG.
1: Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is The Circle Harp, by Donna Glee Williams. Today's story is about choice. I find stories about choice very interesting, especially since science has now apparently proven that choice is an illusion, and we humans have no free will. If you haven't gotten the memo, let me fill you in. In 2007, John Dylan Haynes, a neuroscientist in Berlin, conducted an experiment. He sat his subjects down in front of a display screen flashing random letters and asked them to press a button whenever they felt like it. He recorded their brain activity during all of this, assuming that the decision and the action would be nigh simultaneous. But science, always the turd in the punch bowl, proved him wrong. In fact, he found that the subconscious brain activity associated with the decision to push the button preceded the conscious awareness of that decision by as many as seven seconds. Seven seconds! In brain time, seven seconds is like sitting through a triple feature of Gone with the Wind, Lawrence of Arabia, and like whatever that 16-hour Von Stroheim movie was called. So, if every decision has already been made deep down in your subconscious before you're even aware of it, then how do you explain the common human experience of feeling like you've made a decision? Well, apparently, most of what we humans perceive to be the exercise of free will is nothing more than a complex matrix of retroactive rationalization. Now, all of this is just a wee bit upsetting for some folks. But personally, I find the idea that we spend our whole lives trying to explain our experiences to ourselves, fit them into some kind of internally consistent personal narrative, kind of beautiful. It means that we're all storytellers at a very basic level. We all understand what it is to create a story, how difficult it is, and how utterly indispensable. Maybe it explains why stories themselves are so powerful for most people. Author Donna Glee Williams has an MFA from LSU and is a proud survivor of Odyssey 2011. Her short story Limits, which appeared on Podcastle in December of 2011, received an honorable mention in Gardner Desois' Best of the Year anthology. She has received honorable mentions in the Writers of the Future competition, the story you're about to hear was so honored, and her stories have appeared in a wide variety of venues. The story is read by Rashida Smith, a fiction writer and cellist living in the Pacific Northwest. Enjoy the story. The Circle Harp
2: by Donna Glee Williams I climbed Harper's Mountain in my 57th year. I didn't really believe that I was ready, but the old tunes had grown stale And my right knee pained me worse each year. The old music wasn't enough anymore, and the door to newness was closing. Wouldn't it be better to try and be refused than to live out my life untested, still playing the same harp I had been given as a girl? Now or never, now or never, now or never. The words niggled at me like a song stuck in my head. So when the long days of summer came and the weather promised fine, I gave in. I bagged up my harp and some food, and I latched the door to my cabin before daybreak with my walking stick to help me on the way and a water skin hanging heavy on my shoulder. The early start would give me the whole long day's sunlight for the trip and, more important, it would get me out of town without having to answer questions. My neighbors know my skills. They would think me silly to travel the long, hard way to ask for a circle harp. I'm not a master. I'm just a village musician good enough for weddings and birthdays. I never took the road to learn from great teachers in distant lands, and I never played for high folk or saw my music work on subtle ears. After I failed, I could always pass off the trip as a whim, a summer jaunt without meaning. But when I was just starting out, I didn't think I could bear their questions and opinions following me up the road. My neighbor's hound pressed her nose through the fence, but we were friends and she didn't bark as she watched me take the road like a sneak going to meet another woman's man. I stole away so silently that none of the other animals stirred as I left the village behind and went into the forest. When my harp stands in my lap, it looks like it should be heavy, all that wood, But it's not. Most of its bulk is just hollow space where the air can shake and the sound can grow. It's less heavy than cumbersome. And the carrying bag spreads its weight snugly across my back. We've grown to fit each other, my old friend and I. And it felt light on its straps that morning, though I knew that, before the day was over, it would bear me down. The way would be steep. Before he died, my father showed me where the harper's trail splits off at the pass. You can't see the harper's seat from our village because of the closeness of the mountains and the cover of the trees. Truth to tell, you can't see much at all from our village. Only in the winter, when the leaves are down and the branches puff like black lace against a white sky, only then can you see the jagged outline of Harper's Mountain. It's no path for weaklings or old women. So I walked, as the dim woods lightened, up to Turner's Pass, where the trail left off the main road and climbed up through the trees. Full morning light slanted between the trunks by the time I reached the trailhead. I turned off without pausing. Didn't I carry a harp? Wasn't I entitled to try? Defiance carried my rush just a little way up the hill before I had to stop and catch my breath, leaning hard on my stick. I'm a born mountain woman. I've walked and wandered, stumbled and tumbled up and down these wrinkled hills all my life. But Harper's Trail was almost too much for me. A jagged ladder climb with steps of stone and twisted tree roots... Tufts of moss showed that few feet wandered there. Prickly creepers snatched at me as if they wanted my clothes, my hair, my harp. This was no trail to dart up like a frightened deer. This was a trail to creep up like a patient snail. I changed my rhythm from a mad scramble to a slow march and began to take more care and save my breath for the long haul. I concentrated on each step, planting my stick first, always on the downside so that if I slipped it would prop me uphill. I made sure I knew where its end was so it would not skewer me in a fall. I planted each footstep mindfully, trying for stone, avoiding moss and wet wood because of the magical speed with which they could set me on my hind end. And I didn't want to break my heart. Heart was the name I gave my harp on the day my father finished it. It sounds like the kind of thing any syrupy 12-year-old girl might call her new play pretty. But I was never like that, even as a youngster. Heart got its name, not from a gush of girlish imagination, but from the simple butcher-and-cook fact that it is shaped like a heart. Even at that age, helping around the kitchen, I'd seen a lot of hearts. They all had that same look, a generous, fleshy bulb balanced on a narrow point like a top, just like my harp. So my father's last strokes of carving were to chisel its name on its base. Only as I grew did the name widen out into all the meanings adults give that word, all the meanings we balance on a narrow point, like a top. Heart had been with me 45 years when I started up Harper's Trail and would probably be with me when I came back down again. I had no illusions about my chances, so I didn't want it crushed to matchsticks in a fall because of a careless step. A broken ankle would mend, maybe, but a broken heart would cripple me. I watched where I put my feet, filled my bag wherever I crossed a stream, leaned hard on my stick, stopped often to catch my breath, and even napped a while in a little clearing when the sun got high. It felt good to be walking a hard path again. It had been a long time since I'd done anything that really taxed me. I chewed my dried apples slowly to give me steady strength and at last, in the late afternoon, came to the place where the land dropped away, not just on one side, but on both sides of the trail. I knew then that I'd reached the ridge line, the bridge between Turner's Mountain and Harper's. I liked this part of the trip best. The walking was easier here, not as steep, and a lively wind flowed across the ridge. Also, the sun was westering now, cutting side lights through the trees that were sparser here, gilding their gnarled branches. Dwarfed and twisted by the wind, the trees grew thinner still when I came out onto the stony cap of Harper's Mountain. I would have to spend the night there, I realized. The idea of going, playing for them, and coming back all in one day had been foolish, as was the whole enterprise, maybe. But why quarrel with myself now? I was on the mountain, and I would find the seat and play and fail and spend a chilly night on the high place and take my heart home in the morning. I wasn't particularly afraid of staying out through the darkness. It was midsummer, so the cold would be uncomfortable, but not killing, and I had no particular fear of bears. But then something did make me afraid. The first one I noticed was set on a small cairn of stones, most disturbingly like a grave marker. The obscenity of it choked me. The next, much older, had so weathered into the forest that I took it for natural branches until I noticed the leather strap that slung it from its tree trunk. And then another, just a few feet beyond, lay in tangled splinters on the trail like the carcass of some hunting animal's dinner. I stepped around it, my heart shaking like a tune played too fast, averting my eyes from the remains of the third old harp, abandoned and decaying on my path, and then there were more. Some of the murdered harps were simple country craft, like my own heart, but others showed the ruins of delicate inlays of wood and bone. They had been treasures of the art, and now they were nothing but scraps. I didn't understand... Harper's Mountain was the place to come to get a harp, not lose one. No one had ever told me any dark stories of harps killed there, abandoned or taken. If the cost of playing for a circle harp was the hazarding of my own, would I take the gamble? Never. But I didn't turn back. Why did I walk on? Maybe I just wanted to see them face to face now, those monsters who had done these things, and did the other thing, too, making the circle harps that only the masters carry. Why would I even want such a thing? My heart and I were comfortable together, good enough to make people dance, Good enough that sometimes neighboring villages would invite us on special days. But good enough wasn't good enough anymore. I'd gotten a little bored. It had been years since I had done something really hard. Years since I'd struggled to learn how to let my heart sing. Playing the same tunes the same way until I died wasn't enough for me or hadn't seemed to be until I saw the broken bones of harps along the trail. And then I knew I'd done the wrong thing. Good enough was good enough, at least for me. But still, I didn't turn back. And I can't tell you why my feet kept going forward, because every voice in my head sang out, Turn around, protect your heart. Your body is supposed to obey your mind. But when I climbed the Harper's Mountain, things went the other way. I was afraid. Harper's had walked this path in the company of their harps and walked back without them. The penalty I supposed for trying and failing. I felt heart's comfortable, well-loved weight, fitting to my shoulders and spine like any other bone in my body, part of me. Can I risk losing you? I wondered as my restless feet carried me forward, and I heard my heart answer. Yes, so I went on, past numberless lost harps, each telling of a harper who had come in hope and left bereft and beaten until I reached the great turret of stone that jutted out from Harper's Mountain. I knew the place from old songs and dreams I'd forgotten. A trace of wear in the rocks led me through trees gaunt with age, but only as tall as my knees. This path had been trodden by every circle, Harper, that walked the earth. I rounded the rock and came to the Harper's seat at dusk. Nobody was there. I had didn't know what to do. Where were the listeners, the judges in this lonely place? Where were the makers and the takers of harps? All I saw was the empty prominence of the seat itself, the stone outcropping that overlooked everything else, mountain and sky and star eyes opening between their lids of clouds, and the whole land spread out below. I called out, but no one came, so I sat down on the harper's seat, hoping it was no offense. Is anybody there? I yelled again. I've come to play for you. I know I'm not good enough, I almost added, but bit off the words. Let them find that out for themselves. I'd come this far, and my knee was hurting, and there was no one there to play for. I waited. Perhaps they only listened on certain days. Or maybe I should have sent a message first. But nobody, not my father, nor the other Harpers, nor the songs, ever said you needed an appointment. Nobody had ever told me anything except to go to the Harper seat and play for the Makers. Maybe they only told you the secret when your name and fame already carried the message of your mastery before you. And who was I but an immodest village harper, and from no large village either, who had hobbled up the trail without an invitation? It got dark, too dark to retreat back down the trail. I feared and fumed and waited and doubted. Who were the makers anyway? Where did they live? What did they live on up here so high? Where were the workshops that turned out such prodigies of art? I was missing something, some important part of the story. No one was coming to hear me. I would spend a cold night out alone on the hard rock of the Harper's Seat. The night, though, was lovely and star-bright, To settle myself, I would play at least for the rising moon. I pulled out heart and tuned the strings that had been put out of sorts by the long walk under the hot sun, followed by the long sit under the chilly stars. And then, when my old friend was feeling better, we played to please ourselves. The night wind sucked away our notes. They didn't swell and blend like they did in the wooden houses and barns where we usually made our music. Here on the high seat of Harper's Mountain, each tone flashed out alone like the stars in the sky, bright and unmixed. We played the stars. Then we played the leaves as they came and were snatched away by the wind. And the water drops that broke apart and came together as the streams tumbled over the rocks. We played the mountains, rippling out below us under the gleaming sky, and then when we were tired, I bagged up heart, curled myself around it, and slept. The sun's sharp fingers poked me awake. What a hard bed. I rolled over creakily and saw the soup bowl of mist below me. My bones ached, but maybe the trip had been worth it after all, just to see the honey light pour into the mountains, dissolving the clouds and unveiling the daylight world. Such beauty. I had forgotten. Too many years without climbing. It was good to have taken one last hard road. I lay still, watching the light come until my hip bone said enough and I pushed myself up. That's when I saw it, lying just beside Hart's old well-worn skin bag, a new, perilously round brown leather sack. I think I made a little sound then, not a word, but a breath with a voice. I reached out and took it, I had a hard time unbuckling the new leather straps. I knew its name the instant I pulled it into the light of day, into my arms, and came close to wetting it with tears. Its name was Wheel. Someone had been listening. Where or who or how, I cannot tell you, but someone heard us, my heart and I playing to the mountains and the empty sky, and it had been enough. I hugged the proof to my chest. It had no base, of course, but balanced on my lap and legs, supported by my arms on either side, and leaned against my breast. I held my wheel like it held its strings, all the parts together and at once. And, oh, It fit me so well. How did they know, the faceless makers of the harps, the exact length of my arms, so that wheel was just a little wider than my reach? How did they know the shape of my breastbone and collarbone and shoulder, as if they had taken my measure for a suit of clothes? Thank you, I called out, up Harper's Mountain and out over the wide world below. Thank you. My first tight clutch on wheel eased. It was not going to roll away from me like a wispy dream on waking. It felt solid and real, though soft against my body. But this was only the charm of its edgeless curve of sturdy wood, blonde as pine although no pine ever had that fine, tight grain webbed with wandering waves of dark gray. I never learned the name of that wood. As my mind began to believe in it, my right forefinger dared to touch a string, and I heard it speak. If honey were music, it would sound like a wheel. I listened Wrapped until the sound died away. I touched again and again, closing my eyes to better hear. Had there ever been such? And the answer was never. With light hands, I began to explore its music, the patterns of the strings, The way they sat at slight cross angles so that certain clusters stood out near the hub and others near the rim. The sense of its making began to come clear to me. A circle harp with a floating hub anchoring all its strings couldn't very well have the clutch of all the tightest ones pulling on one side together. That would drag the hub off center. The instrument would have to balance the string's tension around the hoop, but then what a feat it would be to play a simple waterfall run. What I could do by drawing one thumbnail across my heart would, on wheel, have to be a quick and exact exercise of all the fingers at once. Ah, there! I found a cord And there, another one. How long would it take me to tease out the secrets of its voice? As I plucked the strings to meet their tones and get to know their places, a little drop of guilt splashed me. I saw my heart lying forlorn on the harper seat, still in its bag, while I greeted the day with another I started to lay aside wheel, but I couldn't. While the sun rose on Harper's Mountain, I didn't so much play as play with wheel, just rejoicing in its song and getting a feel for its newness, the strangeness of strings that radiated in all directions, the technical problem of how close they sat near the hub and how far apart they were near the rim, the way I needed to arch my wrists to avoid scraping the tuning pegs that brushed on both sides of the centerpiece. I sat there for a long time, savoring wheels' soul-melting sound. And I would have sat there longer, except clouds in the west were hinting at a storm before nightfall. I needed to start back down the mountain before too much daylight burned away. And I would have days and years to work out the secrets of the wheel. So I got up less stiffly now that music and the morning sun had warmed me a little and slipped my new harp into its new bag. And then I saw the problem that any fool would have seen before. I had two harps to carry with me down the mountain. Well, I tried wearing my heart on my back and wheel across my chest, but I couldn't see the trail because wheel rode high enough to block my view. I couldn't walk blind, not on this path. I tried reversing them with wheel behind and heart in front, same trouble. I loosened the straps so my heart would ride lower, but then it banged against my thighs at every step. Harps want to be carried securely, like babies in their mother's arms. Bumping is no good for them, nor for the thighs either. So then I tried draping one from each shoulder. But they banged against each other hard enough to rouse little squeaks of alarm from the strings. Okay then, I would just have to carry one in each hand like two picnic baskets very carefully. I would go slowly and watch where I put my feet because with both hands full of harp, I couldn't manage a walking stick to help me along. I would leave my stick behind me, though it too was an old friend. I kissed it goodbye, left it on the harper seat, and started home with a harp in either hand. And if you called me stupid, I would not argue. I fell, of course, almost at once. Sometimes attention and intention aren't enough to keep you on your feet. Inching my way back off the knob, a rock shifted under me. My foot slid, and I was falling. Like in a nightmare, slow and shocking, I heard the thumps as the bags went down. Idiot! 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 Trembling slowed my frantic hands, made them clumsy as I tugged open the bags. First, my old heart... I ran my fingertips up and down her wood while her jangled strings sighed to silence. Whole. I found her uninjured and I hugged her to my heart, my other heart, and then I clutched the old heart bag that my mother had made for me so long ago. Thank you, I whispered fiercely into the sturdy folds that had patted our fall. Thank you. And then... Shaking, not wanting to look, I brought out my wheel and ran my hands over its sunny wood. Wheels bag, too, had done its job well. The round of wood was not cracked, though a tiny dent marred its perfection. I cried then, because I'd let my precious wheel be injured because I had risked destroying both harps in my greed to keep them. This, then, was the meaning of the skeletons left out to rot in the soil of Harper's Mountain. They weren't the sacrifice of failing, but of succeeding. If you came to get something, you had to give up something. You couldn't walk back down the mountain carrying two harps. You had to choose. Some had made it a little farther than I had, trying to hold on to both, but eventually they had chosen. Maybe someone had made it down, holding on to both old and new. Maybe it had been done, but left no trace because they had nothing to leave behind. Who could say? It might be possible. Possible for someone, but not for me. I could only carry one harp safely down the slope, and I wasn't young enough to pretend otherwise. And the coming rain would ruin any harp I left behind before I could reclaim it. I would destroy the harp of my childhood and the harp of my future if I tried to hold on to both. I might be mortally stupid but the sound of those two harps hitting the ground still rang in my memory. I would choose like the other harpers had before me. And just because they had all left behind the old to embrace the new didn't mean that I had to make the same choice. My heart had been with me for a long time. Something was owed there. And perhaps If I chose to leave wheel behind, the makers would not let it perish on the path like the others. Maybe that explained why no circle harps lay abandoned on the path. Surely some harpers had been faithful to their old friends and left the new behind, but the makers hadn't let the cherished work of their hands be lost. Perhaps forsaken circle harps had been gathered back as secretly as they had been given. That might be why there were none among the wrecks on the trail. Truly, a harper had a choice, and I wouldn't again avoid it, as I had when I fooled myself into thinking that I could get both harps safely down the mountain. I would set them side by side with all the weight of memory and hope that they carried, and decide between them like an adult woman, not like some girl that hurries past a fork in the path without even noticing. That's how people get lost. So I pulled my heart close, tuned it up, and began to play. I played the old songs, the simple ones that everybody knows, the first ones that I'd learned when I was young. My heart and hands offered up every note as if the harp strings ran up my fingers and knit my knuckles and my wrists. But my ears themselves seemed to have changed. Heart sounded shrill and tinny now that I had heard wheel. I put heart aside, embraced wheel and set my hands on it, and could make nothing of it at all. No melody, no chord, no run, for the fall had put it out of tune, not just in one string, but completely. I wrestled with the pegs for a few minutes, but it was hopeless. Each string strove against, but supported all the rest. Adjusting any one of them dragged the floating hub off center and distressed the pitch of all the others. Nothing could be changed without changing everything. A person might spend years chasing that first perfect balance of tension and never find it. Maybe it was that very quality that made circle heart music so exquisite, so heartbreaking. I had heard these instruments in the hands of others. Our little nook of the world was rarely visited by great musicians who quested the high road for new tunes and techniques. But every few years, traveling circle harpers had passed through. Because I was the village harper and their host, they let me touch their lustrous wooden hoops gently, gently, because to put a circle harp out of tune was an offense beyond imagining. So I'd barely stroked them with the pads of my fingers, like you'd touch a baby's face, gently, gently, but enough to realize that the strings were not placed in a simple rising pattern like hearts, but were dappled together, high and low. I'd barely discerned a hint of the arrangement of the scale, but when the circle harpers played, ah, it was all there. But their tuning had never been faultless, never. Sometimes, in the hand of a great master on a very good day, the sound had come so close that my ear would lean and reach for perfection, but always it would be there, just at the edge of perceiving, a quiver of dissonance, the nostalgia of exactness gained and then flawed. Now I sat holding my own circle harp, and I could only draw sounds of aching discord from its strings, a sweet strangeness but no recognizable song. I wrapped it gently in its pack bag and picked up my heart again. I brushed its well-known strings once more, lightly, and it sang an easy ripple like shallow water moving over a stony stream bed. I slipped it into the other bag and slung it over my shoulders. A few short minutes of walking had me back at the harper seat, where my stick rested in lonely eminence across the smooth stone slab that overlooked the world. I took it up again. I need you, old friend, to get us home and set heart down in its place. I thought at first to leave it snug in the bag that had protected it all those years. It hurt me to think of it chilled and wet in the storm that was coming. But when I saw it lying there, swaddled like an invalid, it hurt me more to leave it bound and blindfolded that way. So I released it and sat it upright on the harper seat, looking out on the whole world below, and the sky above. And there it remains. Although, I suppose the winds will have knocked it over many years ago, and started it on its way to becoming dust, and part of Harper's Mountain. As for me, I claimed the harp I couldn't play. And I took my stick and hobbled home.
0: And welcome back. I've been thinking a lot about change lately. About the things I need to do differently in my own life. The changes I need to make. The details of which are generally pretty mundane. My health, my job situation, the new baby chicks. Probably some of the same things I guess some of you might be thinking about as well. Change can be difficult and sometimes even painful, but it can also be totally worth it. For example, I'm finishing up a pretty big side project right now, recording an audiobook, Something that's taken up the majority of my free time this summer. It hasn't been easy for me or for my family, but I think in the long run it's been good. Time will tell, but I'm glad I took the risk and did something different instead of staying stuck in my rut. I think it was worth the effort, and hopefully I'll get to do a lot more of them. Whatever the case, I know there are more changes coming into my life, and I'm looking forward to them. But hey, enough about me. Let's talk about you and feedback. This week is for the latest of P.M. Butler's Squonk Stories, Squonk and the Lake Monster, read, of course, by Wilson Fowley. Reaction to this one was surprisingly mixed, and to be honest, that might have been my fault. As Finrix pointed out on our forum, typically with these Squonk episodes, we slap warning labels on them, cautioning our audience that these are children's tales. I forgot to do it with this episode, and, well, the childishness of the story seemed to draw a bit of fire. The Funky Gibbon said, It felt out of place on PodCastle. In the same way that there are separate children's sections in a library, I think that this story should have been on a podcast aimed at children. At 34, I am beyond this kind of simplistic narrative, with its clunky, be careful what you wish for message. What? Sir, as another 34-year-old, all I can say is, be careful what you wish for. Swamp said, I think eliminating all Squonk stories on PodCastle would be going too far, but I'm speaking as one who has been with Squonk from his first appearance on Escape Pod. I think where this one fell a bit flat was that it got away from the core Squonk and Wendell relationship. These other characters serve as a good backdrop, but it's the interaction between Wendell and Squonk that makes these stories work. Maybe they need to go on a quest and leave the Horde and Miss Tweedlechirp behind for a while. Atan said, This was not my favorite of the Squonk stories. It felt like it didn't have any of the really standout comedy moments the previous three installments did, but a lesser squonk story is still quite wonderful in my opinion, which was a sentiment a lot of our commenters seemed to share. Finally, ginnybean Bean forty two said, I'm the mother of an adopted son. He's six now, with special needs. We're adopting again within this year. These stories are fantastic, pardon the pun, when looked at through the lens of someone with an adopted child, or a child with special needs. I don't know if the author has any experience with my world, but the characters are tenderly written and deal gently with so many of the subjects that my son and children like him deal with. Feeling out of place, having trouble making friends, looking for people who are like him, dealing with bullies, etc., Even the goth crow's an identifiable character when you've been dealing with foster children for as long as I've been. Mrs. Tweedlechirp's loving and no-nonsense approach to parenting is even identifiable. I like that she's not the throwaway parent that gets tossed aside in some quest for real, wonderful, magical, whatever, biological parents. Ginny Bean, as a kid who was adopted himself, I wanted to say thank you for the comment and thanks to everyone else who commented on that story. Let us know what you thought of this week's episode at forum.escapeartist.net. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Your donations make it possible for us to pay our authors for the stories they write, so they don't have to make such difficult decisions on what laptop they'll bring back down from the mountain with them. And if you can't afford to donate, please consider blogging, tweeting, writing a review on iTunes or just telling a friend about us. Thanks. That was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at PodCastle, Associate Editor Anne Lecky, Co-host M.K. Hobson, Sound Producer Peter Wood, and your editors Anna Schwend and myself, I want to say thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week as we dip our toes back into the sword and sorcery genre with a new story by Saladin Ahmed. We'll play that one for you, the stars, the mountains, and the leaves, from our Harper seat in a week. See you there.
1: Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site.
0: Gail Foreman said, sometimes you make choices in life and sometimes choices make you.